in the book of Philippians, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul took very serious a lot of the words that he heard that Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, it changed his whole life. He devoted his life around what later would become the Bible. And one of the things that Jesus said that really, I think, impacted the Apostle Paul was when Jesus said that a house divided cannot stand. And he probably figured out that if the house divided cannot stand, that a house united cannot fall. And I think that God, or God prompted the Apostle Paul to devote his life to being a uniter, to being a church planter. And, you know, he wasn't writing to strangers when we read the New Testament. We're writing to the churches that the Apostle Paul started himself. And he wasn't writing to strangers. He was writing to people that he planted those churches with. I remember the people from 1979 that we planted our church with. And he, he felt much affection for them. He, he wasn't neutral with what was going on with them. He was passionate that he wanted them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He felt about his churches the way the pastors of this church feel about you, completely devoted to your well-being, to your spiritual growth. You know, Paul wrote all these letters and and there were certain themes in the letters he wrote to every church, reoccurring themes, because basically the people that made up the churches that the Apostle Paul started were people just like you and I with the same struggles, the same human nature. And one of the themes that he talked about in every letter that he wrote, in every church that he started, was the theme to be united. Paul's letter to the Philippians became God's letter to sanctuary when God put it in the Bible. God used Paul to write it, but it comes from God, and it's for us. So I want you to imagine for a moment the circumstances that the Apostle Paul was in when he wrote this letter. He had planted this church 11 years earlier, and here he finds himself in Rome in prison. Imagine finding yourself in prison in a foreign country. You're facing trial as an innocent person. And the sentence could be death. What would you be feeling at that moment? Fear? Worry? Anxiety? Sadness? Despair? What would you be thinking about in that circumstance? Well, the Apostle Paul found himself in that very circumstance. And you know what he was feeling? Joy. You know what he was thinking about? The church at Philippi his friends, the people that 11 years earlier gathered together to establish a, a local church. Paul, in a Roman prison, was freer than any man in all of Rome because the Son had set him free, free indeed. His freedom wasn't dependent upon his circumstances or his location. He could be free inside of a prison. Paul's uh, trip to Rome many years earlier, had gone through Damascus. Damascus was that place that he was going to persecute Christians, and on the way, he got hijacked by Jesus. Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was saying what he said later, that, he, that it, when you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. His life changed that day. His trip to Rome, going through Damascus so many years ago, it was there that Saul of Tarsus met Jesus of Nazareth. 
And Saul became Paul because he was a new creation in Christ. On that road to Damascus, Saul, who later became Paul, had more than a revelation of Jesus. He got a revelation of himself and the life that he had devoted to. He got a realization and a revelation of his own inability to please God with all the good works that he had done. He devoted him life, his life. He devoted himself and his life to following the rules, to, to obeying all the laws of the Old Testament, to try harder and work longer and sacrifice more, just trying to please God. And he realized at that moment, the revelation came that he couldn't please God with his good works. In the next chapter, chapter 3, we might get to this next week, I'm not sure, but uh, the Apostle Paul listed his resume. He said, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He said, nobody was a better rule keeper than me. Nobody was a better law keeper than me. And there outside of Damascus, after that encounter with Jesus, Saul realized that he had just enough righteousness to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. And the irony was, it wasn't the bad things that he was doing that kept him from God. It was all the good things that he was doing. The rule keeping, the law keeping. He realized that you can have a ton of religion without an ounce of salvation. So Paul had to lose his religion to find salvation. He lost more than his religion too. He lost his reputation. He lost his freedom oftentimes. But he gained a righteousness in God's eyes when he raised the white flag of surrender and stepped across that line of faith and said, not by my works, Jesus, but by your work on the cross. That's my entrance into heaven. And he was never the same again. He gained a righteousness in God's grace. He gained a relationship with God that he never had. And he gained a freedom to be the man that he always tried to be and wanted to be, but never could be. And because of that encounter, the Apostle Paul wanted everybody to experience the freedom that he experienced. He wanted everybody to be set free, free indeed. And so he began to plant churches, and he began to preach the gospel. And one of the churches that was planted, as we've already talked about, was planted in the city of Philippi. And there in the prison, the Apostle Paul receives a visitor, a man that the church at Philippi had sent to Paul named Epaphroditus. And he brought a financial gift for Paul to sustain him, knowing that he couldn't work while he was in prison. And Epaphroditus brought Paul the good news that the Philippians had concern for his well-being, concern enough to take an offering and to send Epaphroditus. But he also brought news that was bad. He brought Paul news that there was division in the church. There were doctrinal divisions outside the church. You'll see that in chapter 3. But there was divisional, relational division inside the church. You'll see that in chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul knew that division always reveals a spiritual problem. Conflict and division are rampant 
among every generation, including ours. Division always reveals a spiritual problem. You know, people don't have relationship problems. People have sin problems that affect their relationship. When we treat each other like the Bible tells us to treat each other, there's not conflict and and division. Problems get solved when hearts get right, right with God. And so Paul says that, that only unity in the church could make his joy complete. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a bad situation here, but I still have joy. But in order for my joy to be complete, there's got to be unity in the church. Unity brought joy to Paul. The condition of the church mattered to Paul. A divided church broke his heart. A united church made his joy complete. You know, unlike many people, Paul was never unaffected by the condition of the church. As Paul thought about his friends in Corinth, he wrote this. He said, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. He said later, besides everything else, after all the travels and all the troubles and all the persecution and all the rejection and all the sacrifices I've made, he said, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul wasn't an uninterested third-party observer when it came to the church. So in spite of being in prison, in spite of facing a death sentence, in spite of all the difficulties that he faced, Paul had joy. But it wasn't complete joy. His joy could only be complete if the church was united. You know, that's not unlike Jesus' situation that he found himself in. He found himself one day in the same situation that I just described Paul was in. It was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows everything they're going to do and for how long to him. He knows that he's going to be arrested, tried, tortured, and killed. Now put yourself in that situation. Imagine yourself just hours away from being executed. Your fate is sealed. Your time is short and your punishment is certain. What do you think he was thinking about? What do you think he was talking about? You know, in that situation, you won't be talking about the weather or yesterday's game. It will only be about your highest priorities, the dearest, most important things in life. That's what you would be thinking about. That's what you would be talking about. And that's exactly what is happening at the end of Jesus' life. Only the highest priorities, only the dearest, most important things in his life are going through his mind. Jesus' fate was sealed before the world was created. Like I said, his time is short. He's got only hours left. His punishment is certain. So certain that many years before, a prophet spoke generations earlier as if it had already happened. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. On the last day of his life, Jesus began to do what he's doing right now as we are all gathered and what he's going to continue to do until the day he returns. 
seated at the right hand of the Father, he began to pray and intercede. First, he prays for himself, and then he prayed for his immediate disciples, and finally, he prayed for his followers who were yet to come, those who would believe on the message that was shared. You know, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that as Jesus prayed for those who were yet to come, who would believe because of the gospel message, I believe every face here today crossed the screen of his mind. He saw everybody. He personalized everybody as he prayed for them. But notice Jesus didn't pray for the health of his followers. He didn't pray for the power of his followers. He didn't even pray for the success of his followers. He prayed for the unity of his followers. He says in John 17, the prayer in Gethsemane to the Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That was what was on his mind. Jesus says to all of us, really, if you're a Christian in your beliefs, then be a Christian in your actions. Be a Christian in your relationships. Of all the lessons we can learn from Jesus' final prayer, don't miss the most important one. Relationships, our relationships, are at the very top of Jesus' priorities. Our unity matters to Jesus. Unity is important in heaven. It's a major priority on God's heart. Unity pleases God. Disunity displeases God. I believe by reading scriptures that after salvation, God's greatest desire is for us to honor him in our relationships with one another. And I come to that conclusion because that was his final prayer. You know why our relationships are so important to God? Jesus told us in that prayer. He said, Father, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in them. May they also believe in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus had said earlier, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. There's a lot of disciples out there. The thing that sets Jesus' disciples apart from all other disciples is our relationships and the way we treat each other. What made people become Christians? Have you ever wondered that in the New Testament? They were going to lose everything. Their family was going to have a funeral for them and kick them out of the family. They would be kicked out of the synagogue or the temple. The culture would treat them as a pariah. They would face persecution and hunger and beatings and imprisonment. Some fed to the lions. What would possibly make someone raise the white flag of surrender and cross that line of faith? What would make them peek through the fence and said, I'll give my whole life to be a part of that? I'll bet you it was two things. I'll bet you it was the transformed lives, the changed lives they saw. Hey, I remember her. She was greedy, but now she's generous. I remember him. He was always angry, and now he's kind to everybody. She was always depressed, but now she's happy. And They saw the transformation in lives, and they say, I want my life transformed too. But there was something else. They saw, as they peeked through that fence, people with transformed lives 
who loved one another, who treated one another like other people don't. A loving, united church is the greatest tool of evangelism the world has ever seen. That's why people crossed the line of faith. That's why people gave up everything to become a Christian in the first century. If we love one another, not if we agree about everything, not if we solve every controversy or disagreement, not if we solve every frustration, not if we do everything the same, if we love one another. If unity creates belief, then disunity causes disbelief. The scandal of the ages isn't the sin of the world. It's the disunity of the church. I think it's been Satan's greatest weapon, probably. I think the sin of disunity has probably caused more souls to be lost than all the other sins combined. If unity creates belief, then unity is the key to reaching people with the gospel. If our relationships show the gospel that we profess, then people will embrace the gospel as fact and true. The greatest obstacle to the salvation of the world is not found in the world. It's found in the church. The greatest sin of our era is not the immorality of society. It's the disunity of the church. Paul thought, if unity is a priority in heaven, shouldn't it be a priority in the church? Shouldn't we all heed his plea when he pleaded with the Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? He didn't say make this a priority or give some effort to this. He said make every area top priority. Do whatever it takes. Paul knew how Jesus felt about unity. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi to challenge the believers to live like believers, to love one another, to forgive one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to bless one another. You know, most of the New Testament, if you read it, it, it's written pretty much to tell us how to get along with each other. There's a lot of other things, but a lot of the New Testament teaches us how to treat one another. So in chapter 1 of this letter, to the Philippians, Paul said in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. You bear the name of Jesus. Live like it for God's sake. Treat each other the way Jesus would treat you. Remember, when you've done it to the least of these, Jesus' brothers and sisters, we've done it unto him. So live in a manner worthy of the name you carry and the gospel you profess. In chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete. I've got joy even in this prison, but it's not complete. He said, my joy can only be complete if you're united, treating each other the way Jesus wants you to treat each other. And then later, he said, work out your salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation, because you can't do that. Paul tried that and got a revelation of how empty that was and worthless that was on that road to Damascus. He didn't say work for your salvation because salvation comes only by God alone through the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross. But you know, salvation doesn't just save us, it transforms us into new creation and it unites us all under the banner of Christ and his work on the cross. So Paul is saying, live out what salvation put in you. You know what salvation put in you? the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit brings the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how Paul could have joy in prison and have a peace that passes understanding. So how do you work out your salvation? By God's grace. You're saved by grace. You work out the salvation that God gave you by his grace. You don't pull up your bootstraps and try harder like Saul did. You don't try to keep all the rules and... And, and live up to all the laws. You don't try to break them, but you, you know that you're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. The Bible says in, in just chapter 2 that God is at work in us, both to will and do according to his good pleasure. That's the want to and the can to. He works in us to desire to obey him, and then he works in us to do or have the ability or the power to do what we could never do without that grace, what Paul could never do. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know what fear and trembling is for people who've surrendered to Christ? It's no longer fear of what God's going to do to you. It's fear of what we're going to do to him. Are we going to disappoint God? Are we going to grieve the Holy Spirit? Are we going to shame the name of Jesus? That's the fear and trembling that we should have. The Apostle Paul was anything but a coward. You know, you read his story, you think, man, what kept him going? He went from one city to the next to the next, and each one had different sufferings and different opposition and different persecutions and different rejections. And he just kept going. I never think about Paul being afraid. Even though I'm sure he was, he was human like we are, but I never think about that. And then I hear what he said to the Corinthians when he said, for I'm afraid. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. He wasn't afraid of the onslaught of hell of the demons or the false teachers or the false religions or anything else, but he was afraid that he would find all the things that caused division in the church. That's what Paul was afraid of. That's what prompted him to write this letter and probably most of the letters in the New Testament. So then finally, after saying all those things in the first part of the letter, Paul says to the Philippian church, let me show you a couple of examples just so you don't think this is an impossible task or too lofty of a goal. Let me show you a couple of examples. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, he tells the church, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be, cheer may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him 
so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Paul says, you want an example of somebody who's a model? Look at Timothy. He said, I have no one else like Timothy. I read that I thought of all the things Paul did, of all the places he had been, of all the people that he knew, of all the churches that he started, but Timothy was unlike any of them. It's like Paul was saying, Timothy was one of a kind. And what made him one of a kind? Always thinking of others, Paul said. Always willing to go wherever he was sent. Always willing and content to be number two behind Paul. And I think Paul was challenging the Philippians. After hearing there was divisions among them, says, be like Timothy. Be that one to somebody. Timothy's my one. Who are you a one to? Be like Timothy, a servant. You know, servants never cause division. Never cause, nobody hates a servant, a real servant. They appreciate the servants. They're inspired by the servants. They're motivated by the servants. Be like Timothy, a servant, one who was loyal, one who was faithful, one who was humble. He was challenging the church in Philippians to be like Timothy. And when God put this letter in the Bible, he's challenging sanctuary to be like Timothy too. You be that one to somebody. And the more people you can be that one to, be that one, the one that unites and not divides. And then he said to Paphroditus, you sent him to me, he said, with a financial gift. Paul then sends him back and commends him to his home church. You know, we've got a a culture around here that really Pastor Rod initiated, and that is a culture of affirmation, commendation, encouragement. Encouragement is so rare. There's so many people that walk around, I think they have the gift of discouragement. They seem to always see the problems. They never encourage anybody. Paul commended him to his own church. That's really important to do. Paul calls him brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. And that's what he was. I read that. It reminded me about Nehemiah. You know, he was working on the wall, and it said he had a sword in one hand and a tool in the other because he was going to have to build sometimes and fight other times. And you can't really fight with a tool and you can't really build with a sword. You need both. Epaphroditus was both a soldier and a builder. He fought for and built unity. He built and fought for the church. Paul says, honor people like Timothy. Honor people like Epaphroditus. And you know how you honor them? You imitate them. Follow their example. Be inspired by them. Humble, selfless servants, people who produce joy and people who promote unity. Two things we all want, two things every church needs. So in the last few minutes here, I want to to get painstakingly uh, practical. What do we need to do to have unity at sanctuary? Let me point out, I'm not thinking about any problems. I'm not thinking about anybody who's being divisive. This is a theme in every letter in the New Testament, so it's a theme that every church needs to hear, and so this is more preventive maintenance than anything else. What do we need to do? Pray for unity. 
Do you realize unity is a gift from God? That's why Jesus prayed and asked the Father, make them one as we are one. But every gift has to either be received or rejected. The writer of Romans says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and with one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that God gives you the, the, the gift of unity. After asking God for unity, act for unity. Don't just hope for unity, and don't just plan for unity, and don't just pray for unity. Pursue unity. Paul says that all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Forgive others. Forgive others. Be one who forgives graciously. You know, God loves to forgive. Who is a God like unto you who delights in mercy, the psalmist said. Paul told the Colossians, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This was so important that Jesus said, if you're at the altar making a sacrifice of worship to God, and you remember somebody has something against you, or you have something against somebody, leave your sacrifice. Stop your worship. Go and be reconciled. That's how important it was. Don't be easily offended. Proverbs says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. Paul told the Corinthians, love is not easily offended. Pray for unity, pursue unity, and promote unity in what we say and in what we don't say. Solomon said, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And when you do speak, be careful how you say it. Again, Solomon says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs anger. I remember one time I taught on a Sunday and the next morning, Monday, there was a couple in my office, and they didn't like something I said, and they basically were attacking me and my family, really very offensive way. And that voice in the back of my mind that was going, Rocky, Rocky. I was going to give them the Bible study of their life, and I was going to use a hard-covered Bible to do it. But I thought, you know, a, a kind word turns away anger, and so I reasoned with them. And I knew they were Pharisees, but they were also sincere. They had the courage to come and talk to me. And, and that time, I don't normally do the right thing, but that time I did the right thing. And you know, it won them over. They stayed at the church for years, were on the worship team, served. I could have driven them out, and I could have been totally justified to do it. But this verse reminded me, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Avoid conflict whenever it's necessary. Sometimes conflict is necessary. The Bible says to oppose people who are spreading false doctrine. Stand up and oppose them. There's times where conflict is necessary. I'm not a pacifist where you just never do anything. But if you're going to get involved, get involved and, and avoid the conflict if at all possible. Proverbs says, starting a quarrel is like a breach, breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. 
Determine you're going to be a peacemaker instead of a peacebreaker because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Pray for unity, pursue unity, promote unity and protect unity. And what I mean by that is don't tolerate divisive people. You know, that's a scriptural mandate. Don't tolerate people who divide. It's not just the pastor's job to confront people who are being divisive. Proverbs says, a wicked man listens to evil lips. A liar pays attention to malicious tongue. If you're in a conversation and somebody's talking bad about somebody and being divisive, speak up. Don't listen. Don't pay attention. Titus 3 says, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, then have nothing to do with them. And there are some people out there that are Olympic champion dividers, if we let them. Pursue unity for yourself, promote unity to others, and protect unity for everyone. If Paul wrote a letter to Sanctuary today, it would sound a lot like this letter to the Philippians. He would say, make my joy complete and love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we could hear the cry of your heart. I pray that we can make your priorities our priorities. I pray that the things that are dearest to you would become dearest to us. And I pray, God, that this church would be an example of how to honor God and worship you by loving one another, by the way we treat one another. I pray, God, that we would reach those around us with the gospel as people peek through our fence and say those people have been changed and they love each other. Father, I pray that... that uh, you would be the one who binds us all together. You would remind us that this is your will for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.